This is Structured Rambling, a podcast about ideas from literature and about literature. Episodes can focus on a single text or a theme from multiple texts. My name is Paul Sonsby. Welcome. I don't know how some English or literature teachers or university professors of English do the same thing over and over, class after class, year after year. Yes, I understand that there are many of those who only have so many resources, but then I'd still need to change it up, even within limited resources. I'm not bragging. I'm enjoying the fact that I can't do a good job with repetition. Math and science don't change. Even history is only so dynamic. Best you can do is fight against government intrusion. I teach in Alberta, and we'd almost removed any sort of education from education. Soon we won't teach the existence of dinosaurs, and we'll suggest that Jesus won World War II. But I'm rambling. I'm personally always changing things up in my classroom. I have to. I always change to suit my students. I may really want to teach Merchant of Venice to my grade tens, but when I meet them and see what they say and see how they work, they may tell me without telling me that they need me that teach them Romeo and Juliet or The Taming of the Shrew. Something I've started doing is thematic units. A major theme idea with a bunch of texts to suit it. For example, in grade 12, I'll often do Death of a Salesman by Arthur Miller, The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald, and either the film There Will Be Blood by Paul Thomas Anderson or No Country for Old Men by the Coen Brothers. The theme is the dark side of the American dream. Now, I've done these for years. As I find students see comparisons, see juxtaposition as a great entry point, even on completely and vastly different texts. Today I'm going to discuss two linked texts I've really enjoyed teaching over the years, especially because of a personal connection. The personal connection, something linked to my own past, a special friendship of mine, a relationship with my grandfather I'm going to do in a special bonus episode as a follow-up, so stay tuned. I call this connection the better story story. I guess before I expand on that, I better say there are spoilers in this. I hate saying that because I always deal in terms of the whole text, but both of these texts have particular twists, and the biggest connection between them comes with their endings. The two texts are the 2004 film Big Fish by Tim Burton and Jan Martel's Life of Pi. There will also be some Pearl Jam mixed in for taste. Let's first consider Life of Pi. Now, I should mention that one of my earliest episodes was a full discussion of this novel, and you can find it back in my archives. You may know the novel or the film. The film is very good, and except for the disastrous last half hour, uh, it does an okay job of of converting the, the novel to film. But let me sum up and then hit the major points I need here. Life of Pi is in four parts, though Martel has it wrote it in three sections. 
The first hundred pages is set in India, in Pondicherry, where young Piscine Molitar Patel is educated in practical zoology and spiritual religion. That sounds redundant, but you know what I mean. His family owns a zoo, and he becomes an expert on animals, comparing them to humans, and most importantly, learning the specifics of how to deal with them. This will be important in his later survival. There's a passionate defense of the safety that animals gain from zoos that I always find interesting and provocative. Basically, he says that um, this sense that animals need to be free, animals want to be safe, and in the wild, most animals wouldn't keep a bigger space than what they have given to them by the zoo. But it's a controversial opinion, but it's it's fun and provocative. Pi is a devout Hindu with a practical agnostic father and a faithful mother. Accidentally and beautifully, he also becomes a practicing Muslim and a Christian. This kid so loves the beauty of God's love that he feels more is better. And despite comical encounters with his three faith guides, a yogi, a Muslim, and a priest, which sounds like I'm about to say a joke about somebody coming into a bar, Pi never feels um, that there's anything bad with loving God through multiple entry points. Here is... An early couple of chapters that I feel present the novel's entire theme. Chapter 21. I am sitting in a downtown cafe, after, thinking. I've just spent most of an afternoon with him. Our encounters always leave me weary of the glen contentment that characterizes my life. What were those words he used that struck me? Ah, yes. Dry, yeastless factuality. The better story. I take pen and paper out and write. Words of divine consciousness, moral exaltations, lasting feelings of elevation, elation, joy, a quickening of the moral sense, which strikes one as more important than an intellectual understanding of things, an alignment of the universe along moral lines, not intellectual ones, a realization that the founding principle of existence is what we call love which works itself out sometimes, not clearly, not cleanly, not immediately, nonetheless, ineluctably. I pause. What of God's silence? I think it over. I add, an intellect confounded, yet a trusting sense of presence and of ultimate purpose. Chapter 22. I can well imagine an atheist's last words. White, white, la love, my God, and the deathbed leap of faith. Whereas the agnostic, if he stays true to his reasonable self, if he stays beholden to dry, yeastless factuality, might try to explain the warm light bathing him by saying, possibly a failing oxygenation of the brain, and to the very end, lack imagination, and miss the better story. The better story. That's the key here. Not truth per se, but the better story. The consistent idea Pi presents throughout the novel is that why wouldn't you believe in God? If you can prove or disprove, if you cannot prove and you cannot disprove his existence, why would you not believe in an omnipotent creature whose sole purpose in existence is to love? This is not my own belief, nor do I think is it even Martell's, but it's a very compelling belief held by the protagonist of this novel and very compelling anytime pi says it 
In fact, the main part of the novel is one long example to eventually support this argument. Pai's family chooses to flee to flee Mrs. Gandhi's brutally conservative India for Canada, taking most of their animals with them. Their ship, the Simsum, sinks in the middle of the Pacific and Pai is stranded on a life raft for most of a year. Initially, he's with a zebra, an orangutan, and a hyena, but in the end, it is just him and a Bengal tiger named Richard Parker. The majority of the novel is this middle section, Pai's survival, his training of, adapting to, and living with Richard Parker. His survival. It's like Robinson Crusoe on a boat without hidden worship of capitalism. There are clues to where the story is going, such as when Pai sings to his mother on what he assumes is her birthday, but most of this section is purely scientific, logical. There's a strange incident where Pai lands on a botanically impossible island. This is section three for the reader, but the end of section two for the author. An island that provides all of Pai's necessities for both himself and Richard Parker, but which consumes flesh at night. Pai is safe from this carnivorous island if he sleeps up a tree at night, but he chooses to leave the island because having physical needs met does not equate to life. Surviving alone is not living. Pi arrives in Mexico, and there's a very sad scene where Richard Parker leaves him forever. A scene significantly well handled in the film. Um, it's a beautiful moment where the, the actor who plays Pi, Irfan Khan, gets quite emotional about the departure of his, his comrade the tiger. Um, I have to say, I, I, I'm sure this is just one of those things, whatever those things are, but hear me out. The tiger's name is Richard Parker. Uh, he's called that because of a clerical mistake. He's supposed to be called Thirsty, but the man who who ki- who captured him and took him to the zoo was named Richard Parker. Read the book. It'll make more sense, but it's fun. Anyways, Irfan Khan has a small part in the initial, the first uh, Andrew Garfield Amazing Spider-Man movie uh, featuring the lizard as the villain. It's the, f- I think the only Spider-Man movie that actually shows Spider-Man's parents dying. Why does this matter? Why am I telling you this? Well, the guy who plays the older Pie in Life of Pie plays the person responsible for killing Peter Parker's parents. His father's name? Richard Parker. I don't know if it means anything, but it always makes me think. Anyways, Pi is taken to a hospital and we know he will eventually move to Toronto to become a professor with a combined degree in theology and zoology. Neat story. So why are there almost as many pages left in this book after the arrival in Mexico as there are in The Lord of the Rings after the ring is destroyed? Well, because, my precious, turns out the point of this novel lays in its final segment. The whole thing is built around two Japanese officials who represent the ownership of the sunken vessel conducting an investigation on why the Simsum sank. Say that six times fast. It's a scene of high drama and comedy, a scene the film totally fails. After Pi tells his story of islands and tigers, 
The two officials are completely incredulous. It won't do. Quite far now from their original mission, they press Pi for the truth. Their ability to believe this incredible story becomes a sticking point. Afterwards, Pi lashes out at them saying, quote, Don't bully me with your politeness. Love is hard to believe. Ask any lover. Life is hard to believe. Ask any scientist. God is hard to believe. Ask any believer. What is your problem with hard to believe? Now they continue respectfully telling him they like his story very much, but they can't accept it for the truth. After a couple more pages of their arguing, Pi relents to their request. Quote, You want a story that won't surprise you, that will confirm what you already know, that won't make you see higher or further or differently. You want a flat story, an immobile story. You want dry, yeastless factuality. It's critical at this moment you recall that earlier passage I quoted that also mentions dry, yeastless factuality. And also that yeast leads to bread, and bread's symbolic association with most faiths, including the body of Christ. So, for several pages, Pi tells them a new story. In it, there are no animals. Each of the original animals is substituted for a person. The wounded zebra becomes a Taiwanese sailor with a broken leg. The hyena becomes a French cook who resorts to murder and cannibalism. And the orangutan? She becomes Pi's own doomed mother. So who is Richard Parker? Well, the tiger is Pi, the bestial side of him that can kill, eat meat, survive, but which is repressed as soon as the boy returns to civilization. He has to create an animal version of himself to accept the awful things he has to do. If one likes, the story we spent more than 200 pages reading becomes an allegory. When Pi finishes, one of the Japanese officials says to the other, quote, what a horrible story. They discuss it for a bit, for a time alone in Japanese and then with Pi. It's clear that as horrified as they are, they accept the second story as truth, even though it hardly provides any answers. Significantly, it tells them nothing new about the ship's sinking, which is the nearly forgotten purpose of their inquest. As they are readying to go, Pi asks them a question. The section is almost entirely in dialogue, and it goes like this. Quote, The Simsung sank on July, July 2nd, 1977. Yes, and I arrived on the coast of Mexico, the sole human survivor of the Simsum, on February 14th, 1978. That's right. Square brackets here. Please note that the day that Pi arrives in Mexico is the official day of love the planet wide. And square brackets. Back to the quotes. I told you two stories that count for the 227 days in between. Yes, you did. Neither explains the sinking of the Simsum. That's right. Neither makes a factual difference to you. That's true. You can't prove which story is true and which is not. You must take my word for it. I guess so. In both stories, the ship sinks, my entire family dies, and I suffer. Yes, that's true. So tell me, 
since it makes no factual difference to you and you can't prove the question either way, which story do you prefer? Which is the better story? The story with animals or the story without animals? That's an interesting question. The story with animals. Hi. The story with animals is the better story. Thank you. And so it goes with God. This ties the whole thing together. Going back to that initial passage on atheists and agnostics and the phrase, the better story. If you reread the novel, looking at the better story, the matters of faith, which of course is defined as the suspension of disbelief, you see a whole new purpose. If you believe the non-animal story is true, you get revealing hints of allegory throughout. What's interesting to me is most careful readers I know, including teachers, believe the allegory is the real story. In 2004, I had the great fortune of attending a very intimate reading and signing by Jan Martel at East End Saskatchewan's Wallace Stegner House. This story had just won the Man Booker Prize. He was on cloud nine, and here he was in the middle of southwestern Saskatchewan reading from his book. I was dissatisfied with his answers to my question, which was on the island. He basically said, I took it in, took it out, put that part back in. But then one sweet little old lady told him how much she enjoyed the book and asked which story he believed was the real one. I want to think she said which she thought he thought was the better one, but that might just be hopeful memory. It's been 20 years. He said, provocatively, which one did I spend most of the book on? It's funny, because I'll level with you. I didn't love Life of Pi the first time I read it. How many books is that true for? How many books on our first read we don't like, but are so much better the second time? It makes me wonder how many books I've read and not liked that I should go back and try again because they're so much better the second time. Maybe. Maybe. I can think of several books I didn't like until a second read. But I'll tell you right now, I'm never going to give The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, The Hunger Games, or The Song of Achilles a second read. I don't have enough years left. But the same is actually true about the film I use in connection with Life of Pi, Tim Burton's Big Fish. I'm not a Tim Burton fan, and you'd think that would have helped me you know, like this film because it's not a typically Tim Burton film. It's not all emo and weirdo. There's no Johnny Depp, but there is a Helena Bonham Carter, and she's great in it. But my second viewing of it made me mad for it. Because Big Fish, as with the book it's loosely based on, is all about stories. And stories, as I've always said, are the most important commodity we have. The premise is simple. Edward Bloom likes to tell tall tales. He's at the end of his life, dying of cancer, and his estranged son, Will, returns to find out the true versions of his past. It's interesting to mention that Edward is an over-the-top storyteller, but Will is himself a journalist. That's right, both tell stories, but Will's are factual, as Pi would say, full of dry, yeastless factuality. Edward says that Will's stories have, quote, all of the facts, none of the flavor. 
Something really powerful to me is the first moment in modern times, much of the film was told through embellished flashback, the first scene that they are actually together in adult form on film. Uh, in modern times, Edward is in a bed and Will is asking him for the truth, not a fake or impossible story. This is a very powerful connection to that last section of Life of Pi. The, the film is told in shifting timelines, and Edward's life story is revealed in implausible tall tales, including giants, werewolves, and witches. The movie begins with Edward telling the story of how he went to catch the biggest catfish in Alabama. However, the fish was supposedly the reincarnation of a dead uh, bank robber, so he uses his, his wedding ring, gold, as bait, catches the fish, but releases it once it spits his ring up, he even thanks it. This, he claims, is what he was doing the day his son was born. The main character development is actually Will's, not Edward's. Will is angry with his father and just wants to know the truth before Edward dies. Ironically, Will's wife Josephine is pregnant, and he will be a father soon himself. As the story goes on, he keeps saying, What? Wait, what? That really happened whenever he finds out his dad wasn't lying or wasn't lying completely. Edward's stories are not complete fabrications, just near mythic embellishments of the truth. When a man's tall, he's a giant. When a woman's unmarried and odd, well, she's a witch. The great turn of the movie is Will's buying into his father's mode of storytelling. There's a right time for fairy tales. There are three moments of this. The climax is Will telling Edward about a fantastic funeral that Edward is going to have where everyone he's ever known shows up and in the last moment he turns into a fish and swims away. The second is Edward's actual funeral where Will sees a very tall man, if not a giant, a ferocious ringleader, if not a werewolf, and identical Chinese sisters, if not Siamese twins. In the film's denouement, we flash to Will's son swimming in the pool, telling the story of the giant to some friends. When the son asks his father if he's getting it right, Will says, Pretty much. Pretty much. Tell me a better two-word summary of fiction. A key scene in my connection of this film to Life of Pi involves Dr. Bennett. This is a minor character who knew Edward growing up, who delivered Will, and who will tend to Edward in his last days. Edward has had a stroke and lays unconscious in bed. Will is sitting with him when Dr. Bennett comes in. Now, after complimenting Will for not trying to speak to, an, to the unconscious Edward, something that the doctor can't abide, Dr. Bennett asks Will if he knows the story of the day he was born. The real story. Will is excited for Dr. Bennett to tell him. Will was born early and healthy. Perfect delivery. Edward was out of town on business, though it wouldn't have made any difference, as in those days men weren't allowed in the delivery room. Dr. Bennett says if he would have had the choice between that and an elaborate story about a fish in a wedding ring, he would have chosen the latter. He would have chosen the better story. He says, but that's just me. What is the better story? A lie? 
aren't lies wrong? Santa Claus and Tooth Fairy and that you can be prime minister someday and that dead people still love you and that your dog moved to the farm? Hmm, I guess lies can do good. Take out religion, take out lies, take out tragedy, take out paternal issues. We like stories. Stories are good. Again, stories are the most important commodities we have. I don't believe the fundamental themes of these two texts, that believing religion is better than believing facts, and that lying is better than the truth. But I love these stories, stories. A good story can make you enjoy it without having to be it. That is what makes a better story. And now you know the rest of the story. Good day. I want to thank you for listening today. And if you enjoyed my podcast, please feel free to give me a rating and review. Episodes come out at the beginning and middle of pretty much every month. Have a great day.